Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me on the show as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And back with us, we have author and trade unionist, Paul Embry. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the Tories in turmoil, the Supreme Court smackdown of the Rwanda policy and the double standards of the Metropolitan Police. So it's been a bit of a week of upheaval for the Conservative Party. They've uh, Rishi Sunak has sacked Suella Braverman, his hardline Home Secretary in the reshuffle, and brought in David Cameron, a kind of figure from uh, politics past. Tom, what have you made of these changes? What do you think it says about the direction of the sort of Sunak government? I think it suggests it's got no direction whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it does suggest that to the extent that he's got a plan now, it is just to kind of revert back to the kind of factory reset of British politics pre-2016. I thought mm. Cameron coming back was not only very surreal, but also very telling in the sense that the Tory party's kind of very brief dalliance with populism or we're just trying to do something a little bit different beyond a quite narrow kind of new elite consensus is well and truly over and whilst I didn't really hold a can particular candle for Suella Braverman I'm sure we'll get into that, that sacking and what that meant I thought it was telling insofar as a visionless political class which is now thinking that they can just kind of ignore mm. all of those kind of populist ructions of the past few years that they can ignore the issues that have long been ignored um, just push them to the side once again and I just wonder about that David Cameron point in particular. Like, who is that supposed to please yeah. other than the handful of kind of liberal Tories in the commentariat and Michael Heseltine and a few Tory grandees? That's the only constituency this could possibly um, respond to this positively. You know, even the kind of well-to-do home counties Tories of old who loved him, the kind of younger generation who mm. wanted this kind of kinder, gentler Toryism as they saw it, loathe him over Brexit. Yeah. Whereas the rest of the country who voted for Brexit loathe him over Brexit as well. So I, it, I thought it was a really telling moment, not just of kind of rudderlessness on the part of Sunak, but also that sense that so many people in political life and in the commentary are just desperate for things to go back to normal before voters mattered. Mm. <laughs> and it felt like that was a perfect example of that, really. You know. Yeah. Paul, doesn't David Cameron embody everything we voted against in 2016 and then, you know, everything that the Tory voters voted against in 2019 uh, with Boris Johnson's majority. Yeah, and, and including many former Labour voters mm. uh, who voted Tory for the first time because they felt that, the you know, the, the message in get Brexit done and level up in your communities, which I never kind of bought, but I understand why they did. Um, and many of them uh, voted in a way that was, I think, a very explicit rejection of, of Cameronism, uh, if you like. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm no fan either of, of Braverman, um, but there's no doubt that some of her statements did chime mm. with mainstream opinion. Mm. I mean, they're, they're supposedly controversial. They, they, you know, the Westminster elite may see them as controversial. I'm sure they do, uh, and the liberal commentariat and what have you. But, but among ordinary working people, they did resonate some of those views in terms of saying that multiculturalism had failed, in terms yeah. of saying that 
immigration without integration can can threat or threaten the national character uh, and that sort of thing uh, views on trans issues and what have you um and i think the the kind of message that her sacking sends and and particularly you know with cameron coming in as well uh is that if you are somebody in politics who tries to challenge the established orthodoxy, tries to challenge the entrenched political and economic dogma, then you don't really get to hang around for very long. You're not really allowed to to hang around for very long. And I wrote about this today. You could look at people, you know, you don't have to agree with any of them, but you look at people like Truss and you look at people like Braverman, you look at people like Corbyn and Dominic Raab and people like that. All of them kind of did try to shake up the status quo to a certain degree and were met by establishment forces saying, no, actually, you know, the grown-ups need to be in charge. We need to stick with the status quo. Uh, So in, in my view, what it shows is that Westminster politics is very much reverting to type. Uh, and that kind of brief flirtation um, over the last few years uh, with a more kind of rooted, sovereignty-based, small-c, conservative, patriotic politics has kind of gone out of the window. And actually now both parties, what we're going to see at the next election Mm. is a choice between a sort of reheated Cameroonian liberal centrism and a reheated Blairite liberal centrism. Um, And I think that's going to carry serious implications for for the... um, for the politics and for the democracy of the country. And, and if you can spot the difference between the two, please write in. We do. Oh, exactly. Right. There is not a difference. <laughs> mm. uh, Tom, isn't it ironic that Suella was essentially sacked for things that she said were that were right? I mean, she mm-hmm. said some horrendous things, of course, you know, talking about an invasion of migrants, hurricanes of migrants coming. She made ridiculous comments about homelessness being a lifestyle choice. But last week, the things that were controversial was her saying that there are hateful elements to the pro-Palestine marches and that the Met treats certain protesters differently. Those were perfectly sensible points that most people would agree with. Definitely. And I think that the rage against her and the fact that this was the, the thing that finally did it for her, that was, you know, kind of sealed her fate and gave everyone that kind of wind at their sails that they felt they could finally kind of dislodge this person who offended their sensibilities so much. The fact it was that, Mm. the fact it was calling out the police, the fact it was touching on the question of the protests that have been roiling London every weekend at which, you know, all kinds of horrendous anti-Semitism has been expressed and so on, I thought was telling because I think it was um, a kind of liberal centrist commentary engaging in a mass displacement activity. So you're presented with this tremendous problem and this tremendous poison in the form of the backlash amongst some of these protesters towards Israel, towards what's going on in Gaza, something that is often going far beyond calls for a ceasefire and peace and so on to open expressions of anti-Semitism. It's a lot easier to just... Go, you know, go after Suella Braveman and say she's being incredibly reckless with her language and she's inflaming the situation rather than actually confront the issue that is staring you right in the face. And I think that's part mm. of the problem with sort of, on the one hand, I think the kind of Suella derangement syndrome, if you will, has led people to react in a very kind of histrionic fashion to things which oftentimes might actually be the views of the country or the concerns of the country, whether we're talking around multiculturalism, immigration, gender issues, whatever. But also I think in this particular instance, it was very much like, the liberal left commentary do not know how to deal with this problem. They don't really know where they stand in relation to it in many respects. And so it's just much easier to go back to opposing everything Suella Braveman says and to make her the story of the week. I mean, we talked about her nonstop for a good portion of the past four or five weeks when supposedly Israel and Gaza was the main issue. <laughs> um, and I think that's telling of a political class which is um, not only quite 
kind of easily driven to hysteria mm. about the wrong things. But it's also desperate to ignore the big questions that are confronting us at the moment. I think that was part of the, the fuel of that particular, you know, ousting in that sense. Yeah. And, and Paul, I mean, can that last? I mean, it feels like politicians do want to take the public out of the conversation again. They want to, as you said, revert back to sort of pre-2016 ways. I mean, surely there will have to be, some, something will have to break once again. There'll have to be another Brexit moment where people reassert themselves. People are like, surely just aren't going to put up with being sidelined like this. Well, I, I, I think Tom said earlier, um, I, I, there was a, a small number of Liberal, Tories MP, Tory, Liberal Tory MPs or words mm. to that effect. So I actually think that that cohort is much bigger than, than perhaps people realise, actually. I think that... Tiny in the country, quite big in Westminster. Yeah, there, in, in, exactly right. In, in Westminster, um, I, I think, I mean, whether it's a majority, I don't know, but a very sizable proportion of Tory MPs are kind of very liberal and would see themselves as liberal, centrist, progressive, all of that type of thing. And and quite often, as I say, seek the metropolitan embrace. Mm. So you will see people occasionally uh, take, you know, a, a more robust position on a particular issue. Uh, and then they come under such pressure. It's almost like they think, "Oh, this could, this could alienate, you know, the the, the North London dinner party set sort yeah. of thing." You know, my peers, the kind and clever people. So I, I better smooth my edges a little bit. Um, and you see, I think conservative politicians do that do that stuff all the time. Um, and it's a very there is a very patrician attitude, I think, toward and we're seeing it reasserting itself towards working class people and working class voters. We saw it in Brexit. We're seeing it again now uh, that you know these people uh, are ignorant enough to vote for these things or to demand these things. You know, it's all very populist, and we need to save them from that ignorance. Yeah. You know, we need to mm -hmm. save them from their own ignorance. They need to be kind of dragged out of it. Uh, and they, I, I think they just regard, especially working class voters, as, as oics, really. Mm. Um, and, you know, have looked at the, the things that working class voters have done that have shaken up the political system over the last few years. Uh, and I think they would genuinely quite scared about it for a while, but almost now seem confident enough to say, well, that particular rebellion is now dying away. So, you know, we can we can reassert our creed at the top of British politics. But I think that's a dangerous game. I think they need to be careful what they wish for. Definitely. Tom, is there anything you want to add? No, I think it's just <clears throat> it's worth remembering that when we voted to leave in 2016, it was a revolt against the Tory party as much as mm. it was against the Labour Party or the blob or whatever it is that you might want to point to. David Cameron campaigned for Remain. I think it was about 57% or around that number of Tory MPs voted and campaigned for Remain. Um, there was a relatively small number of them who took it very seriously and were very passionate about it. And if you actually think about a lot of the kind of pseudo-liberal or pseudo-progressive issues that we're having to deal with in terms of the derangements of gender ideology or all kinds of different issues... The Tory party in its kind of Cameroon-ish form is responsible for introducing a hell of a lot of that. You know, yeah. this wasn't something that the Labour Party were demanding and they just kind of acquiesced to it out of a desire to look good on the dinner party circuit. Well, that's certainly a part of the calculation. They are kind of really up to their necks in this stuff mm. as well. So I think that's always, it's, we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, in that sense that both parties have reverted back to what they see as the mean, I guess. I'm just always struck by the fact that what is referred to as centrist yeah sensible politics, politics from which you can win and so on, is so completely out of whack with where what you might call the rough centre of the 
public art. Mm. <laughs> and I think we're seeing that once again. I, th- I feel like in the short term, the consequence of that is just going to be a lot of people being quite demoralised and going back to not voting. But as you say, mm. something's going to have to break at some point. And the terminology, the terminology is important as well because, you know, they, they will always... It's almost like they appropriate the word centrism because by definition, it kind of places people... Uh, on the centre ground and people think, oh, that's moderation. The centre ground is moderation and, and you know, these are obviously uh, quite enlightened, moderate, temperate people. But, of course, you know, some of the positions that so-called centrist MPs hold, if you go out there in the country, particularly to, to small-town, blue-collar, post-industrial Britain, they will see those positions as being quite fringe positions, actually. Mm-hmm. They're certainly not centrist positions out there in the country, but the language is designed to say, look, we're in the centre, we're sensible because we're in the centre, everybody else, therefore, by definition, must be on the extremes. And if you're on the extremes, then you need to think about your view kind of thing, you need yeah. to come into the centre. So, you know, it needs to be, every time they, they try to, to pay all that sort of language they need to be challenged on it so this week um dramatic decision from the supreme court striking down the rwanda policy this is the uk government's flagship migration policy essentially the idea is that asylum seekers would be processed and resettled in rwanda to deter them from making the journey illegally to the uk now the case hinged on the fact that uh, rwanda is probably not a safe country, it might send uh, people back to their country of origins, the so-called refoulement um, being a risk. But Tom, I mean, what have you made of the decision and the sort of political implications of it? Well, I think since the Rwanda policy was first mooted, it's kind of brought all of the sort of anti-democratic parts of our system out in hives, or the non-democratic parts, shall we say. It's It's been a kind of stress test in a weird sort of way for mm. how supposedly democratic policy making can function in this in a situation where the elites are very much against the policy. Um, so regardless of how you feel about Rwanda, and we've criticised it on spikes, and we might get into that here, but there is something very concerning that from the off, first of all, we had the kind of natural response from the great and good. You had the lords want to get involved naturally yeah. to try and thwart this. You even had um, King, then Prince Charles, making it known what he felt about the policy. The Archbishop of Canterbury <laughs> gets involved, and then ultimately it's something which has to be decided and ruled upon in the courts. Um, first in our own courts, but inevitably this could this battle could end up in Strasbourg as well. And I think it's a raises really difficult questions about who rules, who decides on policy in this country, as the role of the law just drifted so far into the role of political contestation to the point where you can't separate out the parts. All of that is really, really concerning. At the same time, you couldn't help but feel that partly because of the Tory party's unwillingness to do what it would take. Mm to really push a policy like this through, to grasp some of the nettles of the European Court of Human Rights or the Refugee Convention, things that would make them very unpopular on the dinner party set, even if they want the policy. Yeah. The, the fear of what it might look like to try and implement it is something that obviously deterred them. And that's where a lot of the criticism of Sunak has come from, which is that you have been engaging, as Suella Braveman said, in kind of magical thinking. You thought you could pass a policy that was obviously going to hit these roadblocks mm. um, with a bit of tinkering around the edges without wanting to really kind of do what is necessary. So I think there's a kind of combination of, yes, it has raised those really disturbing questions as to who rules, who decides policy and so on, but also I think has called the Tories bluff in a sense about yeah. how committed they are to this particular policy, to this particular way of governing. And um, it left you with the suggestion that they would rather just kind of be engaged in this constant panto with the courts or the blob or what have you rather than actually do what they say they want to do, you know. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, even the Sunak's reaction to this, he's tried to present himself as saying he will do whatever it takes, but on paper, you know, 
the actual policies he's suggesting, declaring uh, Rwanda a safe country via parliament. Lots of, you know, law, eminent lawyers who are quite trustworthy, like uh, Lord Sumption, have said this is just rubbish. It's not going to, you know, the policy was struck down in so many, you know, at such a fundamental level that uh, you can't really remake it. I mean, Paul, what do you make of that? I mean, that it is a problem, isn't it, that um, essentially it isn't even our government that decides our immigration policy? It is, um, but I do think we also we we need to be careful about laying all of the blame for what's happened recently in terms of the Rwanda policy purely at the at the the door of judges. Uh, I'm not a legal expert. I haven't read the the judgment. I've seen the the reports of it. Um, I, I do think the idea, as Jonathan Sumption said, of simply legislating to say that Rwanda is a safe country when a court has, on the basis of the facts, said it isn't is mm. bizarre, to be yeah. honest. Um, whatever your view on the substantive issue, um, passing a law saying a country is safe just seems to me to to be a bit ridiculous. But the point I was going to make is that the danger of laying the blame at the door of judges is it allows politicians off the hook for what has been a consistent and monumental policy failure over a number of years now. Uh, And I suspect that the Tories would like to see everybody kind of rising up against the judiciary and the civil service. And I'm not saying that those elements are blameless, um, especially the civil service, Mm. I have to say. Um, But... But it, it, it will be seen by more astute people as, as an attempt to de- deflect the blame, really. Uh, and when you think that this government, the Tory government, has over many years, time and again, year after year, election after election, manifesto after manifesto, said we understand the concerns about uncontrolled immigration, the levels of uncontrolled immigration, the rate and the pace, and we will get the numbers down. And time and again... They completely failed to do it. And you have to conclude, not just because they're inept, but because probably, and this goes back to the debate about, you know, the the liberal Tories, many of Mm. them, and actually I think many of them favour a a kind of liberal immigration policy for all sorts of reasons. So we have to pin that on them and we have to make it clear that those are the people who ultimately are are to blame for it. Um, I mean, we do, you know, we have to to break the business model. There's no doubt on the wider issue that sees thousands of people try every year, risk their lives in order in order to come to Britain. Often, you know, because they've paid large amounts of money to to traffic as criminals, um, that model, you know, clearly has to be broken. And interestingly, I think the Supreme Court did confirm effectively uh, that an offshore policy isn't of itself necessarily yeah. unlawful. Um, so it's still a runner, but there are obviously huge hurdles that need to be overcome. But I just think on on the wider issue, you know, it, it isn't callous and it isn't heartless um, and it isn't reactionary to say, look, no self-respecting country can have a situation where thousands of, of undocumented young men, because it is mainly young men, um, are just arriving on our shores, you know, every every year and we essentially can't really do anything about it. That is a serious issue. It's a serious concern for people. Uh, and until government gets a grip of it, then it's going to continue to be a running sore in our society. It was a, it was a real tragedy in many respects because we, it was almost as if we'd put that issue to bed, really, you know, in the in the 1990s, after you'd see the, the rise of the National Front in the 1970s and some of the racial tensions then. Because people felt that the system was being managed fairly effectively, it kind of disappeared as a mainstream issue at election time. Um, because of all the things that have happened since, it's come back to the fore. And I think that's a crying shame in many respects. Tom? No, I, I think actually tacking on to that is that it's a 
prerequisite for maintaining support for immigration that you get on top of the small boats issue. Um, if the people do not feel like there is any kind of sense of control that mm. no one's in charge, you need to know who is in your country. You need to know who is entering. This is a, as much of a numbers question, but it's also a security question. It's all these things that are obviously fundamental to a state's ability just to kind of maintain support even for some of its other policies in relation to immigration. It's so fundamental. So the people who just kind of dismiss it out of hand and act as if it's something that's been magicked out of nowhere that, oh, this is trivial, this doesn't really matter, I think are going to regret saying that and regret making those deflections because of the fact that in periods in which, as Paul says, people feel like things are under control. It's a bit like in the immediately after Brexit. You did yeah. see a softening of concerns about immigration. People still wanted numbers to come down, broadly speaking, but people it was less high up their kind of lists of priorities, even amongst leavers as well as remainers, because people assume that, right, we're getting this new system. It's going to be something which is controlled. It's something that we're going to be able to have control over. Mm. And therefore, it falls down the list of priorities. People are less concerned about it. Then again, as soon as you get a situation like small boats crisis, it completely shatters any of that trust. So I think it's a prerequisite of a more liberal immigration policy, or even just support for migration well, yeah. in general, for this to be dealt with. You know, I'm surprised that more people on the more liberal side of this argument don't recognise that they're kind of wrecking their own argument. Well, one of the great lies, just briefly, one of the great lies during the Brexit um, campaign was that all Leave voters um, were kind of anti-immigration mm. and they mm. didn't like immigrants and they wanted to send all immigrants back. It was absolutely false. And anyone who mixed with Leave voters knew that for, for the most part it was false. And in fact, I think it was shortly after the Brexit referendum, the Sunday Times did a poll um, where they asked, um, should people who from the EU who were already in Britain prior to Brexit be allowed mm. to, to stay. And I think it was around 79%, 79% of Leave voters said yes. Without So the idea that they were all kind of, yeah. you know, anti-immigrants, send them all back, was just an absolute myth um, and, and one that sadly was allowed to develop. Yeah, and it, it does seem strange to me. that it, it does seem like a new thing in liberal opinion. I'm sure it wasn't like this 10 years ago. And certainly, you know, the new, new Labour government wouldn't have said anything like this, but it seems like people support for illegal immigration is very odd you know mm -hmm. um suddenly as as you suggested it's it's callous to even deal with irregular migration well, to tackle organized crime that is is responsible for bringing people over the you know border well it, it wasn't that long ago that on on the left the position of controlling your borders controlling the labor supply was a mainstream position on the left because people you know trade union leaders working class labor MPs understood that the labor supply was a market dynamic which like all market dynamics needed to be regulated so as to allow the government to plan around employment and welfare and housing and and to make sure there wasn't undue pressure on wages and stuff entirely mainstream position on the left and the open border position was largely a position that was held by, you know, Trotskyists, anarchists and hyper-liberals. And now that's that's kind of completely crumbled, that, that particular consensus, if you like, where the vast majority of, of the left, in my view, are in favour of a very liberal immigration policy. And anyone who kind of tries to articulate the more traditional position of controlling the labour supply is looked upon as some sort of fan of Nigel Farage. You know, you must be some <laughs> rabid right winger. I mean, it's uh, that's how far uh, away from, from, I think, sensible politics the left has gone in recent years. We're looking for a full-time advertising sales executive. So if you've got a bit of experience in media sales and securing new brand partners, if you're commercially minded and you're driven by making sales, and if you're passionate about promoting Spike's journalism, then this could be the job for you. 
To find out more, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash jobs. That's spiked-online.com forward slash jobs. So the Metropolitan Police are under fire again, being accused of double standards once more. Um, Another pro-Palestine demo seems to have got away with things that perhaps other protesters wouldn't have. Uh, So there's some video footage of uh, protesters climbing on top of a First World War memorial this week and police officers essentially standing around doing nothing later saying that no laws have been broken. Um, It's not illegal to be disrespectful, the Metropolitan Police said. Now, Tom, that will be news to the many thousands of people who have been arrested Mm -hmm. for being disrespectful over the years. Well, there is that. I mean, but also in relation to those memorials itself, I mean, wasn't it your man from Pink Floyd's son was arrested? Yeah, Charlie Gilmore. Charlie Gilmore, who was, um, is it David Gilmore is his father? Who uh, was caught trying to climb up one of the flags on on the monument and was given a pretty decent sentence for yeah. doing so uh not that not that long ago so for the police to turn around and say obviously no crimes have been committed it's not a crime to be disrespectful disrespect is not really what we're talking about here as well you're talking about kind of criminal damage in effect <laughs> um but it has really been one of the more glaring examples of the sort of gaslighting that's been going on with the metropolitan police in relation to these processes where for whatever reason they feel unwilling incapable to police even violent or damaging behaviour, shall we say, Um, effectively. They'll often, if people are rounding on one individual because they're there waving an Israel flag or whatever, they'll remove the individual with the Israel flag. If there's something like this has happened, they'll try and turn a blind eye for it. Some of it, I understand if you've got a large amount of people in a particular place and you could actually escalate matters. I know all these concerns are coming into play sometimes. But when you stack it up against similar cases in times past in which clearly crimes have been dealt with in a different way, it just Mm. continues to strike people that the police that the Metropolitan Police in particular are, particularly with how they're talking to the public, just making it up as they go along. Yeah. But as you say, the other point, you know, you can, disrespectful, (laughs) um, you know, barely the limit of what can get you in trouble in terms of just things that you say on the internet. There was this case that um, we've written about on Spike this week. It came to light over the weekend from the Fair Cop campaign group of a gender critical woman in the Northeast, in the Northumbria police, brought her in for a police interview because of the fact that she had been posting some pretty kind of, standard um, gender critical opinions on social media, talking Mm. about how trans women are men and so on. Those kinds of perspectives can get you brought in by the police, questioned, interrogated effectively. No charges were forthcoming, but still, it's an incredibly intimidating thing to happen. For what you say, and yet in cases where what you do, verging on criminal damage is there, there's a light touch to it. So I think a lot of people are just, more than anything else, just struck by that sense of double standards and, and... gaslighting that's coming out of the Metropolitan Police at the moment. Yeah. I mean, Paul, there, there has been a sense, um, not just from the past few weeks, but for the past few years, that the police have become thoroughly politicised in how they approach the public. And it was something that um, Braverman pointed out, um, that there is an inconsistency in, a, in the approach of the police quite often to different types of protester. Uh, and people are not stupid. I mean, I've been on lots of protests in my time, uh, and you tend to see and understand when the police have got a fairly strong grip of it and are not in the business of taking any nonsense and when they're just willing to let things go. Um, And I, I think that you can look at things like the, the, um, the, the the pulling down of the Colston statue in Bristol um, where Avon police essentially 
just stood by and let it happen and later admitted that they mm-hmm. stood by and let it happen. And, you know, the thing went in the river and eventually there was some arrest, but they said, you know, we didn't want to, to inflame the situation. And then from that, we saw similar attempts on other statues, not just in Britain, but across the globe, actually. And I think because that Colston one had got such coverage, mm. I think people looked at that and thought, okay, so that's going to be the approach of the police if we try it. So they kind of sniff it out almost. And I think that set a, a pretty dangerous precedent. Um, and there, there is, you know, undoubtedly there's a, there's a contradiction, I think, in the way the, the, the police have approached some protesters, the BLM protesters, for example, um, compared to some of the lockdown protesters. Yeah. And on, on the wider issue, yes, I think they are highly political. Um, they're, they're a, what I call a, an unedifying fusion of social activist and social worker. Yeah. Uh, and if, you know, I think when it comes to their bread and butter job in terms of dealing with everyday crime, you know, the crime that blights communities, the, the vandalisms, the burglaries, the antisocial behaviour, it's almost as if now that's taken, and, and, you know, genuinely trying not to caricature them, but it almost is as if that kind of stuff is secondary now. Yeah. And the main objective, certainly for police leaders, is to to flaunt their progressive credentials and to say, look, we've signed this pledge and look, mm-hmm. we're flying this flag. Aren't we wonderfully mm-hmm. inclusive, um, you know, forward-thinking people? Whereas ordinary people look at that and think, well, okay, but I was burgled six months ago. You didn't send anyone round, or I've got yeah. a drug dealer at the end of my street, and you're not interested in it. And I just think that if they were if they were a commercial organisation, then trade trading standards would have been onto them a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, because they simply don't do what the what they say they do on the tin. And you know, we've seen stories, and I covered in, in my book Despised. I wrote about a few of them over recent years, where feminist groups have been around in in Crosby and Merseyside putting stickers on lampposts saying simple things like, you know, a woman is an adult human female, yeah. Thames Valley Police as well. Um, and, you know, the, they were ripped down and the police investigated. And in, in the Merseyside case, the, the mayor of Liverpool said he fully expected the police to investigate it and to bring the perpetrators to account. So people stating simple biological truths, whether it's with stickers or on social media, are brought to book and mm. have the resources of the police turned against them. You can't do that. Um, whereas if you want to desecrate uh, a memorial, um, they tend to turn a blind eye and it's, yeah. it's just completely unacceptable. And, and Tom, obviously in cases of speech, we don't want to see equal opportunities, arrests no. and crackdowns. Mm-hmm. We want there to be no arrests and crackdowns for what people say, mm-hmm. essentially. No, I think that's a very important point. It's <laughs> not the, the, the existence of double standards doesn't mean you should just crack down more evenly and then everything mm. will be absolutely fine. But it is striking the extent of the disparity. Yeah. You know, you've got people routinely having their collars felt for gender critical perspectives, you know, for misgendering. This has kind of been written up as if it's just a sort of right wing punchline. It happens a lot. You mm. know, the, the number of people who have been not just had a police interview, but actually been prosecuted, dragged through the courts or even just arrested and interrogated for their conduct in social media and expressing themselves in line with their beliefs, which the vast majority of the country actually hold, is pretty large at this point. And these are just the ones that we know about. So this woman in the Northeast recently, there's also the Kate Scotto case, Marion Miller, there's all kinds of people now who have had a pretty rough hand from the police in relation to expressing what are, at the end of the day, quite mainstream opinions. And if you look at the disparity on the other side, where you have the 
police offering, you know, 18 different definitions of jihad when they're confronted by Hizbut to rear supporters calling for it on the streets of London. Yeah. It's so, the gap is so extreme that it really does raise a lot of questions about how, almost without noticing it, the police has taken on a certain kind of political hue. That it unconscious feels bias, in, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a very good way of putting it. All that unconscious bias training is completely yeah. backfired. It's instilled <laughs> in them a very strong <laughs> unconscious bias. And I think that actually reading the transcript, because Faircott put it out, this woman in the North East who was mm. being interviewed by the police, of the, um, not just the police officer, but also her brief, the solicitor that she'd been given to, you know, represent her, is fascinating because you just see that they quite, naturally think that there are certain things one shouldn't say that it's yeah. basically an offense to be offensive mm. <laughs> that um at the end of it you've got the lawyer turned to him so i've advised my client that she should probably avoid expressing these things <laughs> in the future because that's the way of the world <laughs> these days it's the water that they swim in now yeah. in a really stark way but going back to double standards of course that just because of the fact that those double standards are rank and extreme and just because it seems so out of whack with what one group of people are being arrested for saying, as opposed to one group of people who are definitely not being arrested for saying much more extreme things, the last thing we need is sort of tit-for-tat mm. censorship, um, demanding that the police just crack down more evenly. Um, because I think it's a real danger that in politics more broadly, that it is, we just will continue to legitimise censorship, whether it's state censorship, council culture, whatever, as just a kind of legitimate weapon that everyone wields. Yeah. And I think that would be a very bad road to go down definitely definitely and and very finally paul i mean could this get even worse with labor i mean there are plans to treat um essentially anti-trans speech or gender critical speech almost as a, a hate crime on a par with racial hatred which could mean potential prison sentences you know there's a race equality act in the in the offing we don't quite know what that means but doesn't sound positive for free speech could it maybe even get worse it could do. <laughs> there's, there's, there's every possibility of that. Um, they, they, look, the, the, the left are immersed in this stuff. They're immersed in the kind of equality, diversity, uh, inclusion stuff, uh, often to the expense of other important issues, socioeconomic challenges mm. that, that we face. Um, and the whole thing, I think, is almost like a, a ratchet effect where you know, one particular initiative uh, is launched and the objective is achieved. And then, you know, let's not rest there. Let's see what's the next thing. You know, let's drive forwards. What's the next thing we can do? And the, the problem is that it, it, when you're on that kind of never ending treadmill, if you like, then there's no end to it. And that's when things become even more extreme with, you know, pronouns on badges and that sort of thing. The current leadership of the Labour Party, I think, have, have backed away from some of the wilder uh, policy positions, especially on some of the trans stuff in recent times, because I think they realise that you know this sort of thing doesn't particularly go work, go down well out there in the country, particularly places like the Red Wall that mm. they need to need to win back. But I know from experience that much of the Labour movement um, is completely behind. Uh, some of this stuff, some of this fringe stuff. And, you know, going back to, to Tom's point, I mean, I work in public service and I, I know there is a culture of fear in public services and people kind of go along with it. Not because, I mean, I speak to people in, in corners and people whisper and whatever, and lots of people know it's absolutely crackpot yeah. stuff, yeah. but they just think, look, <laughs> I just don't want to put my head above the parapet yeah. because I might be called in and I might be disciplined or I might not get promotion. Uh, and, you know, there's such an obsession, particularly in public services with this sort of stuff, uh, that unless you are absolutely on the ball with every dot and comma of you know, the the organization's policy position around diversity, equality and inclusion, etc., then your career won't go any further. I just think that's that's distinctly unhealthy. 
Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.